0: It's the NFL preseason. Check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you need fantasy rankings, we've got our rankings and sleepers at fantasyfootball.theringer.com. So come listen to Danny Heifetz, Craig Horlbeck, and me, Danny Kelly, on the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. Let me tell you a little secret. If you want to end the day on an even better note, get yourself a sweet frozen treat from Sonic. Especially since right now at Sonic, you can get half-price shakes after 7 p.m. when you order online or in the app. That's creamy soft serve, hand-mixed with your favorite flavors for half the price in any size and flavor. So save on your chocolate shake today, your strawberry shake tomorrow, and your cheesecake shake the next day. Grab Sonic half-price shakes after 7 p.m. now exclusions apply available for a limited time only at participating sonic drive-ins i'm sean Fennessy, and this is the big picture a conversation show about bullet train it's a new movie set you guessed it on a bullet train we love movies set (laughs) on trains on this podcast so we're going to share our favorites and break down this new Brad Pitt action vehicle on the show today. Joining me to do so, a bullet train of podcasting, Van Lathan. What's up, man? What's up, my brother? So, Van, you and I saw this movie together. We have a new tradition going where we check out these films at these screenings at the AMC Century City, and we get all excited for them. And then they end and we're like, eh, was that good? I'm not so sure. Was Bullet, <laughs> bullet Train any good? What do you think? Um, Bullet Train thinks it's good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think the hubris of the movie at times is just enough to make the movie entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were to ask me, binary, is Bullet Train good? No. But that's not being fair to Bullet Train. Because there are some entertaining movie moments in the movie enough to get you through to the credits. Uh, but in the end it probably fails.
0: Yeah, I think we're in agreement on this one. So this is the new movie from David Leach, who is unofficially the co-director of the first John Wick film, who also directed Hobbs and Shaw. He directed Deadpool 2. He directed Atomic Blonde. He's been a guest on this show in the past. He's really one of the foremost action directors in Hollywood right now. And it's an interesting project because Brad Pitt, as I mentioned, is the star of this movie. And for many years, David Leach stunt doubled as Brad Pitt in movies. So this is a kind of... Kind of a reunion for them. And it's it's interesting to see them blended in this way. I must say, this is a very odd movie for Brad Pitt to have started. In, and hopefully we can get into that a little bit and why he chose to make this movie. Um, you know, in the movie he plays this kind of unlucky assassin nicknamed Ladybug, uh, and he wants to give up the life, but he's taking on one last job as so many assassins often are before turning over a new leaf, and he is attempting to acquire a case on a bullet train. And also on this train are a great number of deadly people who everybody needs to be very wary of them. Uh, among them, Brian Tyree Henry, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Joey King, uh, Andrew Koji, a number of other well-known bad bunny at a certain point appears in the Zazzy film. Zazie yeah. Beats appears in the film. There are also a number of very notable guest, spo- spoilery guest appearances that I don't want to ruin for people in this conversation, at least not at the outset. Very star-studded movie. And yet, Then I was kind of thrown off by the fact that this movie was so jokey and silly in tone that it had me feeling like it never had an inch of stakes to it. And I was interested to learn, you know, that it's based on this novel by the Japanese writer Kataro Asaka and that the novel is pretty serious and that the development of the movie originally, which was developed by Antoine Fuqua, the great Antoine Fuqua, was meant to be a serious drama about this ladybug character. And then when Leach came on, he and Brad Pitt kind of changed it to a comedy. And that struck me as kind of the issue with the movie. Just the tone seemed a little bit too loose for my taste. What, what did you think? So, um, I agree. And I think that
1: people are always looking for different ways to do violence now. I think John Wick does, I think, the marvelization of film in a way has made people look for different reasons to, to, to have intense violence. Like, John Wick is very violent, but it's so stylish that it doesn't feel that way, right? It's it's so like, ooh, he flipped around and put the gun in his ear and blasted it and it hit the <laughs> bullet, came back and killed the other guy, you know? I think Bullet Train is trying to mask the fact that this is a really incredibly violent movie through humor, almost like Deadpool. Mm-hmm. Um, hint, hint. And, and so, it fails.
0: <laughs>
1: you, you know what I mean? Um, the you're you're trying to be it doesn't feel all the time but you're you're trying to stay on track with who's trying to kill who and their jokes just flying at you one after another like so many jokes and really in order for jokes to really be funny they gotta kind of land in a very specific way either through you know some dramatic pretense or from some otherworldly talented comedic performer in a movie who's given them to you. and the movie doesn't have either. And I think we talked about this after Brad's comedy in the movie is off. and that ends up being a reason a little bit of the reason why the tone of the movie doesn't quite feel uh, like it like it really uh like it really hits the mark.
0: yeah, he plays a character who's been recently therapized. and so a lot of his character is kind of consistently talking in this therapy language that feels like a joke that we established 25 years ago in gross point blank like it's a very unfresh joke and it's the whole character the whole movie and i'm trying to wrap my head around why the hell Pitt wanted to do this yeah exactly like we we know this so like Pitt, you know he's very choosy and he has a really high hit rate you know we did a hall of fame episode about him years ago i think around the release of ad astra And it was hard. He's made a lot of good movies, especially in the last 20 years. His taste is really strong. As a producer, his taste is really strong. I love Brad Pitt. This just felt like a lark. And maybe he just wanted to have some fun with an old friend who is now a big-time director and bring in this great cast of characters and just play around for a while. I could see that. But, um, you know, it's a big swing from a big studio, a very expensive movie, a summer tentpole blockbuster, and an original story. And yet, I don't know, it feels, like you said, off. Why do you think he wanted to do it? Any any sense of the decision-making I there? Just, I do not know. I think that people get to a situation like this. You know, Brad's just
1: had a major career milestone, something that I never got the feeling that Brad Pitt was chasing the Academy Award, but I, I did get the feeling that he at least would feel like he hadn't had that accomplishment if he didn't get it because he's an mm-hmm. actor of such stature. So I think maybe he just wanted to have a little fun. And the movie reeks of, reeks of that. The movie, you definitely get that feeling in the movie. Some things we talked about, We don't want to spoil anything for anybody. But you can tell in the movie that these were a bunch of people that wanted to have some fun, and it looks like a movie that they probably had a lot of fun making. Um, and the movie itself is not devoid of fun. I'm not saying it's not fun. Um, and so I, I think that probably has to do more with it, a more uh, uh, has to do with, it has to do more with that, should I say, to get my words straight, um, than anything but I it wasn't challenging for him in terms of his performance he was kind of coasting it wasn't actually even Sean that physically challenging for him it's true you know what I mean like it, it wasn't like Brad Pitt broke out his best kung fu or he was you know in some fight scenes but they were kind of beating potatoes punching and kicking if you're really asking um so I just think he wanted to, to like like you said before like take a load off and make something that probably got a nice check for it Maybe it does. Maybe it does some decent box office. You know,
0: there's this really funny historical trend of actors after they win their Academy Award, the film that follows immediately afterwards, often being a really mediocre genre movie. You know, like Charlize Theron after she won, she made Aeon Flux. Scarlett Johansson had a big genre movie immediately after winning her Oscar. You know, Brad in the aftermath of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, saying, "I just want to have some fun with my boys and be in a stupid action movie." It makes sense. And it does it's tricky because I wanna I kind of wanted to situate this movie alongside the gray man, which Chris and I talked about last week on the show, and which is a very similarly very expensive, expensive, very noisily mounted movie with a bunch of movie stars that after you finish watching it, you feel really empty. You're just like, okay, that happened. It wasn't the worst thing I've ever seen, but it certainly didn't get me excited. And tonally, they're both very, very glib. They're both very satisfied with themselves and there are things about it that are fun and funny, but they don't really feel, they feel like they're operating like beyond the audience. And when you said marvelization of of action earlier, it also had me thinking about just the general marvelization of tone across any movie that has explosions and fight scenes. One of the reasons why Wick has been so cool in the last few years is because it's not winking at you ever. You know, there are some funny lines in the John Wick films, but it's deadly serious. And I really, I appreciate how seriously they take that story this one and the Gray Man put together, it just feels like a bunch of movie stars like trying to create memes in real time. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Right. Are we stuck in this as, a, as, a, as like a mode for action movies right now? I fear that we are. And we've had this
1: conversation before. And I think that there's two things going on. The first is uh, a little bit different than the second one. The first one is that... Um, As these studios more and more morph into financial entities, and as social media and conversation starts to drive uh, art, and we get more fan service vehicles than we get like actual like fucking art. You remember back when they were guys who directed action and they made it seem like every action film was the Mona Lisa. Yes. Like you go back, you go back and watch the Predator. I don't give a fuck what you say. They took that motherfucker seriously. Mm-hmm. They weren't trying to sell no toys. They were telling a story about <laughs> an alien in the jungle who wanted to kill you. They took that motherfucking movie seriously. You can fucking tell they took it seriously, right? So I think that uh, that you know the reason why Bad Bunny shows up in the movie like this is nothing against Bad Bunny. The reason why Bad Bunny shows up in the movie like this and really doesn't do anything is because hey, Bad Bunny's in the movie that might get somebody out to see a movie that might expand us to a different quadrant because this is R-rated and the audience might be a little smaller, right? The reason why there's a cameo a second. is hey, did you know he was in this, blah, 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 all of that stuff, whatever. Secondly is this, is our vi- version of the movie star has changed to the point to where we don't rely on their charisma as much as we used to. Mm. Like like well, the old action movies, think about an action movie like Cobra you're Cobra's not the best movie in the world but you are betting on Stallone to get you through that movie Stallone is such a big fucking deal hey Stallone is a cop he's Cobra fuck it let's give it a shot (laughs) and he's gonna and and he's gonna Stallone you like through that film I always bring up Tango and Cash because the movie shouldn't be any good but I love it like Russell and Stallone are going to get you through that film. Bruce Willis is going to get you through uh Die Hard, which is a fantastically made and written movie, don't get me wrong, but these guys could do that. I think now they more I think now we're looking at more of a situation to where the movies need to discuss our stupid son, Sean. Maybe it's a little simpler. Maybe they need to dumb themselves down just a tad. Charismatic hero, odds, backstory, bad guy. Go. Yeah. That's I, it. I, We've been telling that same story since medieval times. They tell that story in the restaurant medieval times. <laughs> so, so, so 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 what I'm saying is it's like bullet train is cool, but bullet train is doing a lot, man. <laughs> like, a lot, and if it, a movie does that much, you want it to be for a reason, and there is no reason, so it's like, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I, you make a great point, which is that this movie could use some simplification, and it could use some... A little bit. It could use a, a, a dose of seriousness, and it could use, um, I think, a, a, like, a little bit of a lack of self-awareness. I think that that's something there, there is, there are self-aware movies that I really like. And I really like movies that have an, a, an awareness of the history of movies. But what I don't like is movies that are overwhelmingly interested in nodding at the audience. And this is a tricky one because I feel like if we went down the list of the stars of this movie, and we probably should, cause there's some really fun performances. But if you look at what Joey King is doing or what Aaron Taylor Johnson is doing or Brian Tyree Henry, kind of some of the more interesting parts that they've had a the chance to play maybe not the deepest characters, but some of the more fun characters that they've been given the opportunity to play. And I liked watching them on screen and I was kind of engaged in their stories. And yet I never really, I certainly never really felt like they were real people. And I also never really felt like they were a meaningful part of this story. You know, like they were players in the game, but they were nothing less than supporting players or nothing more than supporting players, I should say. And so that's another thing that just sort of felt like it's a rogues gallery movie. Rogues gallery movies are fun, but they often lead to a very inevitable conclusion, which is the strapping white hero making it to the end. And, you know, like this kind of repeats like a a sin while also being a, a problem of the 21st century self-aware movie business. So it's like it's kind of both. Like it has a lot of the old-fashioned problems and it also has a lot of the new-fashioned problems. And so it just feels like a little bit hung up somehow. And I don't know if this is, you know, strictly like a script problem or like the tone thing that I keep referencing, but it's unusual because like Hiroyuki Sonata, for example, he shows up in this film. He's like a great um, Japanese actor. People might have seen him probably most recently in Mortal Kombat, but he's been in a lot of movies over the last 20 years. And he's a very serious and grave performer, almost always. You never see him doing laugh lines. And he's pretty grave and serious in this movie. But when he shows up in the movie, the tone of the movie completely changes. Like, Aaron, Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brad Pitt can be doing their shtick when he, his character's on screen. So there are so many odd decisions like that throughout the movie. Even Brian Tyree Henry, who half the time is playing a very serious character and half the time is playing a full-blown joke character. I don't know. What did you think of the way that they put this cast together is essentially what I'm asking you. So, Joy King was fantastic. Um, she's really good. Uh,
1: she's really good. In, in a way, she's just rounding out growing up to be a fantastic young performer. Uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson for me was the best thing about the movie. Um, the thing about it is like her character's motivations and the character itself was so absurd. (laughs) You you know what I mean? Just the amount of carnage that when you find out at the end of it, it never makes any sense. You never feel connected to her motivation and desires. This is the anarchist for the sake of it. Um, you, you never fall into love with anybody. You never fall in with anyone. um, And that's hard for a movie that's doing this. There's wildlife in the film that just has nothing. It's just another thing. They just keep adding things, Just a new thing. Everything is just a thing. No, these stories aren't. It's just a thing. The recurring joke about Thomas the Tank Engine. Just a thing a thing, a thing, a thing, more things. I'm not saying these these aren't story points that don't work themselves out at the end, but they never seem to be particularly compelling, interesting, or important, right? And even at the end of the movie, when we find out there's a, uh, spoiler alert, there is a handler who talks to Brad Pitt the entire film um, and is almost like a friend to him, a friend and a handler uh, that tells him about what he has to do. You find out who the person is at the end of the movie. It should be a cool little moment. It's not because it doesn't fucking matter. Yep. Like, you, know, you know what I mean? Like, who cares? Um, So the characters in the movie were cool. You know, to be honest with you, I thought Bad Bad bunnies, uh, montage that explained his history was actually kind of fun. It's not like it's not fun. I mean, some of this stuff is fun, but it's just... It's just big and silly and stupid. So it's it's like it, there's not much else to say, you know. If you got an extra couple of bucks and you want to go and just watch a lot of shit happen, go <laughs> fuck with it. You're not gonna be mad, but it's not. You know what I'm saying? It's not. It's not. It's nothing to. It's nothing to talk about ever. I'll never watch Bullet Train again. Okay. Yeah. Bullshit. 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 Here's the thing. There's a chance I talked to you about this. There's a chance that three years from now, on a Sunday afternoon that bullet train will be four hours on TNT and I might, I might watch it. You know what I mean? Like that
0: type of movie. <laughs> yes. yes. And, and it's funny to, that you say that because I feel similarly, my, I have no immediate desire to revisit it whatsoever, but it's an expectations game and all movies like this are an expectations game. You mentioned Tango and Cash. When Tango and Cash came out, people were like, all right, it's kind of a hit. It's like a mid-tier hit. We've got two big movie stars doing their thing. Certainly not a critically celebrated movie by any means. No. But it has, it has, it had its admirers. And then over time, a kind of like cult of fandom grows. And then kids, when they're nine years old, see Tango and Cash. And they're like, that's the coolest movie I've ever seen. And then they get to be 40 years old and they're like, I don't know why, but this is one of my favorite movies. And right. th- this is that kind of movie in a way. It's like, maybe if you see okay. this at the right age or you get emotionally connected to it at the right time, you might say, what the hell is wrong with Sean and Van on that pod? They were so down on this movie. That is actually a lot of fun. It's more like when we're in the midst of this complicated moment in theatrical movie history, when we're desperate for a new big action series with a new star like Brad Pitt, then the expectations get high. And then you watch the movie and you're like, this is kind of a big bag of nothing. It's like a fun bag. It's like a bag of confetti, you know, and you throw it all over the place. And then once it's over, it's just on the ground and trash you got to clean up. That's that's really all that the movie is. The Bad Bunny thing in particular, is funny that you bring that up. Um, you know, they barely let him speak in this movie, which I thought was kind of a fascinating decision. Uh, I don't
1: think he had any lines.
0: And maybe, maybe that was one like two? a character yeah. choice. Yeah. However, his sequence, which I agree was very stylish and cool, felt very Kill Bill inspired. And then it had me thinking about how this movie is very Kill Bill inspired. And Kill Bill of course is very inspired by lots of movies that have teams of assassins and team ups and people on a revenge mission much like the characters in this movie. And so Kill Bill was this sort of like homage laden super mega genre fast paced action epic 20 years ago. And now we're still just kind of iterating on the same genre mashup stuff 20 years later. There's nothing new about it I guess is ultimately the point that I'm trying to make. And so it's not bad. It's not great. Can I ask you one last thing about it? Can I say one thing about Kill Bill before you ask me that?
1: Of course. I I, I did an experiment one time. Okay. I watched Kill Bill and I skipped every single fight
0: did it work did it still work as a movie yeah yeah
1: it absolutely has zero effect (laughs) like it absolutely has zero effect on the movie like zero effect like this think about it in this film right here
0: if you skipped every action sequence what would you be left with a lot of conversations about Thomas the Tank Engine (laughs) (laughs) honestly (laughs) I mean right you know what
1: i mean and and that and that's not to say that the action doesn't is it not narrative it doesn't tell a story in a lot of the action movies of course it does right but the reality is is like there's a part of there's a that movie has a fastball that this one doesn't so if it's an homage to kill Bill it's certainly a poor one
0: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, Sean, top three movie snacks of all time, go. Um, all right, let me think. Uh, popcorn? Obviously. Hmm. Ice cream? That's two. Oh, and, uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, of course. Peanut butter and chocolate is a pretty perfect combination. Some may even say the ultimate movie snack. You can't argue with that. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Spring is such a refreshing time of year. Flowers are blooming and you're getting your house in order. But now is also a good time to take a second look at your wireless plan because you might be overpaying. Right now, Mint Mobile has unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash pick. That's mintmobile.com slash bigpick. upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. Let me tell you a little secret. If you want to end the day on an even better note, get yourself a sweet frozen treat from Sonic. Especially since right now at Sonic, you can get half-price shakes after 7 p.m. when you order online or in the app. That's creamy soft serve, hand-mixed with your favorite flavors for half the price in any size and flavor. So save on your chocolate shake today, your strawberry shake tomorrow, and your cheesecake shake the next day. Grab Sonic half-price shakes after 7 p.m. now. Exclusions apply. Available for a limited time only at participating Sonic drive-ins. You know, the whole point of this conversation is to talk about movies on trains. And um, this is a movie on a train. It's on a bullet train that's racing through Japan. Did it it feel like a true train movie to you? Uh, Yeah. And I'll tell you why it did.
1: Because the fact that we're on a train is um, the driving catalyst for a lot of what's happening, right? It, the, the train itself, a train, a train, I don't know how many people have actually taken a train. It's a funny little place where, you know, you're walking back and forth. Every single train car has its own ecosystem. Different people have made different alliances. There's an, I used to take the train. There was an observation deck where mm-hmm. go around, people would just be looking out along the train. And so, um, it's uh, it's it's it it does it it is a true train movie the the train means a lot to the film so i wouldn't take that away from it what are your thoughts
0: Well it has one cool convention which is i don't know how realistic this is or not but they're the train car doors only open at every stop for 1 minute and so there are all of these sequences where characters are sort of desperate to get off the train or to get back off the train if they've gotten gotten get back on the train if they've gotten off the train and so this idea of this thing that continues to hurtle forward no matter what anybody has to say about it, is a smart way to frame a story and a smart way to push a story forward. So I liked that aspect of it. And there are a couple of close calls that are pretty cool. I don't know that I necessarily got a real feel for what a luxury train experience is like. Not that I needed that per se, but it kind of presents like it's going to be like that. You're right, though, that like train life is very distinct and very specific. And as I was thinking about movies like this, there are some movies that have iconic train sequences, right? Like North by Northwest has an iconic train sequence, but you wouldn't really call that like a train, a train movie, for example. Um, Is there something that, is there anything that you're looking for? Cause like I asked you to put together a list. I put together a list, our list kind of share movies. Honestly, when when we talk about the the films, I think there's going to be a lot of crossover here, but like, what are you looking for in a train movie?
1: Um, I'm looking for a movie that the, the plot of the film is matching the train's, the plot of the film is matching the kinetic energy of the train. Mm-hmm. Most train movies have a destination. And the train is moving along at the same point our characters are moving on to whatever destination that they're getting to. And a lot of movies, they don't, as much as we think about them as films that go somewhere, they don't quite, not, much, not as much as a movie on a train, because there's a finite time when all of the fucking hijinks are going to be over. At some point, we have to get something done or do something by the time we get to this spot or whatever, and then all chance of having movie are over. Movie in here. No more movie. So uh, that's what I like about a train movie. There's this feeling of urgency to mm-hmm. a lot of them that kind of guides you through it. Uh, with the one notable exception being one that we're gonna discuss where the train obviously never stops. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> but um for the most part, it's people have being forced to deal with something in very, very creative ways because they're in a confined space. Um and it's not gonna last forever. So they only have a set amount of time. That's for most train movies that I like.
0: Yeah, I like that description too. It was funny when I asked you about doing this, you came up with your list like in five minutes. Like you didn't even you, you didn't yeah. blink. Like I I don't yeah. think I don't think I really knew how prepared you were for, for this. Do you wanna do you wanna do your 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 number sure. five? Sure. All right. So these are my train movies.
1: Okay. Number five is Silver Streak. It's literally one of the first movies I've ever seen. Did you catch it on HBO? I caught it. I can't remember where I caught it, but my grandmother was going through a a whole wilder slash prior phase. Do you remember this era?
0: Of course I do. I saw this movie on HBO, like, which is why I ask. Yeah,
1: Wilder and Pryor, um, and it was like uh, they did another one. What was the other one that they did? They did uh, see no evil, hear no evil. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. And they did, and they did stir crazy as well. They did stir crazy as well. So yeah. Um, so Leon Spinks is in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's, like it's, it's a lot like you know what I mean it's a lot like kind of one of those big type of 70s it's it, it's kind of it's not that dissimilar from Bullet Train if we're if we're looking at it in terms of how the movie <laughs> kind of tries to
0: go but I like this when I was a kid um Source Code so I thought about putting this on my list uh huh I like this movie I don't love it Okay. Can you explain the premise for anybody who's not familiar with Source Code and why you love it?
1: Uh, first of all, let me just say something about Source Code. Source Code is, it's a mix of, first of all, Source Code is super underrated to me. But it's a mix of a Groundhog Day type of situation um, with an intriguing sort of uh, train. I don't know why I'm blanking. With an intriguing train-related uh, it's a murder on a train. If I if I mm-hmm. remember, mm-hmm. like, and and Jake Gyllenhaal is in the situation. He kind of has to find out, but it ends up being about much much more than that. Um, much much more than that. And the movie to me is really underrated. And I'd be I'd be I'd be curious as to why you didn't dig it that much.
0: Well, it's one of those movies with an amazing premise, right? So it's like the Jake Gyllenhaal character. I think he's in the army. And he keeps replaying this sequence on the train, which I think is like related to a murder and like an espionage thing. And then the train crashes and explodes, right? Right. And it's, it's like he's in a simulation that is being repeated over and over again so that the government can determine what really happened. Who was really responsible? Why did this event happen? Who are the people who are not to be trusted on the train in this eight minute sequence? And it's a little bit of science fiction. It's a little bit of a, you know, like an espionage film directed by Duncan Jones you know, who had previously made Moon, uh, which was a big debut that everybody loved. Duncan Jones is David Bowie's son. Um, and has gone on to make a lot. You're not going lo- to du- not gonna get to, to. you got to do the David Bowie's son thing when you're talking about Duncan. I mean, do God, God bless. I, Dun- Duncan is very talented. Maybe not as talented as his father, but he's talented. S- super talented. Yeah. yeah. I love Duncan. But this, this is like, it's got a little bit of a third act problem. You know, a lot of these high concept science fiction action movies, their resolution is like, it's all right. It's cool. Like, I like it, but I'm not desperate to revisit this film. Is something I'll say.
1: Let's litigate this one second. Okay. Name me one great
0: science fiction movie
1: besides Empire Mm -hmm. that doesn't have a little bit of a third act problem. The Empire Strikes Back? I said besides Empire. (laughs) Oh, besides Empire. Uh, Planet of the Apes? (laughs) Okay, I'll give you that one. Actually, yeah, I'll give you that one. That's actually a, a, that's actually a money one right well,
0: now. Well, you know, like we used to be a proper country and we used to know how to end our science fiction movies. And I would say in the 70s, a lot of our our sci-fi movies ended well. I liked how the Omega Man resolved and Logan's Run and all these other... Yeah, movies. Man.
1: Bro, I was so fucking scared of Logan's Run, man. I could yeah, not man. handle Logan's Run as a kid, bro. Logan's Run, the premise of Logan's Run was way too fucking much for me. Like just like just knowing that that was a thing and you were just gonna be out of here and nobody fucking survived the carousel or whatever the fuck it was like I just I could never really appreciate the movie because I was so scared it, it played with my anxiety. God damn,
0: Logan's. Run. But that's you, you, sir, source code are no Logan's Run. is really the point that I'm trying to make. It's not bad. Right. It's not bad. Yeah. Um, I haven't I think, seen I it in a long time. It's a symptom of more of a. Uh, more of like a 21st century sci-fi issue I think is that it's really hard to end some of these movies in part because a lot of these stories have been told over and over again. Um do you want to keep going through your 5? Do you want to hear any of mine? Yes I will. Yes I will. Yes, yes. Oh well. Well I'll, you how about I go through mine and then you go through yours? Is that cool? Great. Perfect. Okay. Number 3. I like I like siege. your number 3. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> under Siege 2 Dark Territory. <laughs> this movie's fired. No shame.
1: <laughs> like I don't I don't care what anybody says (laughs) hardly anybody watch under siege two under siege one is good too Uh, hardly anybody watch under siege (laughs) two i fucking love under siege two man you know what i mean it was and i remember this was this there was the subject of some back and forth because bruce willis actually dissed this movie Mm. he was like they basically just fucking under siege and this movie is just basically taking die hard and doing when he was he was promoting uh one of the diehards that was coming out. is like, we've obviously seen the under siege is in the diehards in a diehard on a type of situation and under siege two dark territory is basically die hard on the train. Basically it's what it is. Um, but I, I, that was one that I wasn't sure if you were going to be able to dig it.
0: Uh, here, there's a one very specific reason why I like this movie and it's, uh, Eric Boghossian as the evil computer <laughs> genius, who is threatening Casey <laughs> Ryback, the Steven Seagal character? I'm not the biggest Steven Seagal guy. I'm not even the biggest, like, ironic Steven Seagal guy personally, but right. the Under Siege movies have great premises. And this is also right. at the high time of like Speed and many other movies that were doing that thing that Willis was talking about, where it was basically just like, if you don't reach a certain thing or a thing goes under a thing, then everyone's gonna die. Or I'm not going to get my money, or like you know these high concept, low execution, or low concept, high execution action movies. Again, we didn't know what we had. They were very special. I like Under Siege too. No shame there. Morris Chestnut. Um, (laughs) That's right. I forgot he was in it. Yeah, Catherine Heigl. Young Catherine Catherine Heigl. Heigl? Young Catherine Heigl
1: in that. Um, Number two, obviously, Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer uh, was a movie that Kalika and I, Kalika and I, we would go to. Yeah, I told you about this. Uh, I'll tell you about our iPick thing is that we decided one time that we had to go to the iPick every Saturday, no matter what. Can you explain to the uh, listeners what iPick is who don't know what it is? So the pick is uh, this chain of theaters that serves, obviously a lot of theaters serve food now to your table, but when we first stumbled upon the pick, the first movie I saw at the iPick was the OG Avengers. You go to the IPIC, Press a button. They come out there. You order all kinds of food. You sit back. You eat the food. It's maybe it's only maybe like forty seats in the theater. You're in a recliner. It's just dope. And we liked the iPic and the food at the iPic and the drinks at the iPic so much that we decided we were going to go to the iPic every Saturday, no matter what, <laughs> unless it was a movie we really had to have a theater going experience for, and then we got to go to the arc light,
0: right? Okay. Okay.
1: Um. And so Snowpiercer. I didn't know much about it before it was coming out. I didn't at all, at all. And I was like, "Hey, Chris Evans, we'll go to the IP to see this." She she was like, "Cool." Kalika (laughs) was so grossed out by Snowpiercer; (laughs) she could not handle Snowpiercer. I remember she was so disturbed by Snowpiercer and everything. She did not expect it to be that serious. She did not expect it to be that violence. That violent, the, the part where they're about to fight and the dude takes the knife and he cuts the fish yeah. just to let you know how sharp his shit is. And then they they get about stabbing each other from the, she wasn't expecting a commentary on the environment or on classism. I was like, yo, this shit is crazy. And she was like, this ruined my Saturday. And so <laughs> Snowpiercer is still one of my favorite movies and it's so weird. I watch Snowpiercer all the time. I really enjoy Snowpiercer, but it's a very, very intense movie set on a train. Very intense.
0: I love it. It would have been on my list if it wasn't on yours. Um, I think this is the movie that most people in the States really got out to Bong Joon-ho from. And in part, frankly, because yeah, Chris sure. Evans took that part. And a lot of people, I think, had the same experience you did, which is, oh, Captain America's in this action movie. I should check this out. And what they got was this you know, extremely violent satire of our culture and wealth and capitalism and power structures and all these things. Um, It's also really funny as all Bong Joon-ho movies are, you know, like it's got a very twisted sense of humor and it just has legitimately incredible action. This is the movie you were referencing about the train that really never stops stops. rolling. Um, I assume that most listeners of this show have now seen Snowpiercer. If you have not, please correct this. Please watch this. The TV show is all right, the the movie is fantastic. Um, yeah, the
1: whole premise of the fucking movie is that the train never stops. We're not spoiling anything by telling you the train. The train don't fucking stop. Society lives on the train. It's too fucking cold outside. Um, What's your number one? From Russia with Love. I am a ridiculous Bond head. Um, you got Spectre all in this movie. You got Bond having to be Bond on a train. The whole thing is not on a train. The whole thing is not on a train. Most, um, most we, of
0: the most of the second and third act is.
1: Most of the second and third act is on the train, and uh, I enjoy because you know this was Bond when Bond was really more about the uh, the energy of the spy stuff than it was about big, huge stunts and events. It's more about how smooth he could be, you know, and he did cool shit. Don't get me wrong, but as Bond went on, the stakes like went up, and now with what. Tom is doing Mission Impossible. Fucking Bond's gonna have to jump into a volcano to keep up with what they with the stuff that they're doing over here. But this one is very cool, very sleek, very sexy. And rest in peace to Sean. But you know, I I I love the movie.
0: Um I like this one for a couple of reasons. The number one reason is probably Robert Shaw, who I feel like is the most one of the more credible, less cartoonish Bond villains. Um, it's it's really like right after this one where I feel like it becomes much more about like world dominance and we start getting into the, the Goldfinger era and then all the way sure, up sure, through, try. you know, Hugo Drax and all that stuff. And that stuff is fun, but to your point about it being a little bit more scaled down, I feel like Red, the Robert Shaw character, is also kind of a scaled down villain and he's good and he's nasty and he's brutish and you feel like he can really go toe-to-toe with Bond. So I like that about it too. Um... I didn't know you were a Bond head. I wish I had known yeah, him when we were doing Bond episodes in the fall.
1: I like him a lot. Um, I I love Bond, and I love Bond films. Like I love the Living Daylights. Mm. I know, people, That's not like a Bond movie that like a lot of people dig that much. But I I love I love Dalton as Bond. Like I'm, I'm a big Bond fan. It was a big part a uh, big part of my filmmaking palette when I was um when movie palette when I was growing up for sure.
0: Is Brosnan your bond or is Craig your bond in terms of like the one that you identify with your era?
1: I would identify with my era. It's definitely Brosnan. Um, Craig is the, he's the bond, but it's definitely Brosnan for me.
0: What's your power rankings for bonds?
1: Number one, Connery. I just have to.
0: I respect it. I have to.
1: Number one, Connery. Number two, Craig. Uh, I'm going to go with Roger Moore as number three okay? because Roger Moore doesn't get his love and his credit. Being in that many bonds just matters. So I'm going to go with Roger Moore at number three. Dennis Dalton, uh, Dennis Lazenby. Am I missing one? Brosnan. Oh, got a you. It's Brosnan, Dalton, then
0: Lazenby. I feel like there's just not enough Lazenby love. I know he only made one movie. I know he's Australian, (laughs) but I don't know. I really like his Bond movie. I really feel like he was a pretty credible Bond. I don't know why he wasn't asked back. But on Her Majesty's Secret Service, I've said it before on this show, one of the best action movies of the '60s. Great action sequences in that movie. All right, Um, I can't really quibble with your rankings. I feel like that is for most people. Now we've all we, we sort of have arrived at. If you want to flip Craig and Connery, depending on how old you are, you can, but you most can people feel like that's sure. yeah. that's that that's really the power rankings. Who do you want for your next Bond? Uh, Def Patel. Man, I agree. I, I pitched that once upon a time. That would be really yes. good.
1: Def Patel, um, a lot of people would be like, like, I think Def Patel, first of all, Def Patel has turned into a much more sexy man than anybody thought. And so I think Dev Patel would do a lot to dust bond off and, and get them into, the, uh, into the, to the, next, to the next phase of it. Dev Patel would
0: be great. Let me give you some train movies, okay? You might be, you might be up on some of these. You might not be up on others. Um, okay, I'm cool. going to make my case. Number five, I was originally planning to go with Murder on the Orient Express, which is the Sidney Lumet 70s adaptation of the Agatha Christie story. And then I rewatched it last night and I was like, this is a good Agatha Christie movie, but I don't really care about its train aspect. And I think as I was watching this, I, I started to feel like all great train movies need to have some action element to them. Um, and you'll see as I go through my list that that is definitely the case. So number is, five is, the is... French detective dude on that? I've
1: never seen that before.
0: He's or, Belgian. Uh, Hercule Poirot. Belgian. Yeah. Poirot, Poirot. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he, so he's recently been um, a figure in the Kenneth Branagh adaptations. He made a Murder on the Orient Express himself about five years ago, which is okay. Um the original, you know, the '70s version was Oscar-nominated and was hugely celebrated and was a hit in the time in its time as well. And has a pretty incredible cast like Lauren McCall, Richard Widmark, uh, Albert Finney plays Poirot. There's a it's it's a cool ensemble movie and a fun mystery movie, but it's not as it's not as good as these next five I'm going to give you. So number five is called the Train. Are you up on the Train from 1964? Never saw it. Okay, this is important. Um, the Train. <laughs> Is directed by John Frankenheimer, which is the name I know you know. Um, Of course, this this comes in what I think might be the most underrated five year run for any director in the second half of the twentieth century. Okay, here here's what let's okay. So so Frankenheimer, for listening to this show, you know they'll know him from you know Ronin, and they'll know him from things like um, you know the disastrous Island of Dr. Moreau. And he made a lot of very good movies Uh in the nineties as an actor. I think he made Reindeer Games, the much maligned Ben Affleck movie. In the 60s, it. I'm sorry. He is it's okay, it's okay. Reindeer games, it's fine. Yeah. Um, but in the 60s, he directs Birdman of Alcatraz in 1962, The Manchurian Oof. Candidate, also in 1962, Seven Days in May in 1964, which is this great kind of nuclear era paranoid thriller, and then The Train also in 1964. And then he makes Seconds, a really interesting science fiction kind of what's it with Rock Hudson, and then Grand Prix this amazing racing movie that was hugely inspired Ford versus Ferrari. Six movies in four years. Two movies in 62, two movies in 64, two movies in 66. Many people will say Manchurian Candidate is the best of those. There's a case that the train is the best of them. Interesting. The movie that I, was, I, I was not super familiar with it before, but it's really, really good, man. It's about, um, it's about A a group of French resistance fighters, essentially, who work on the trains. And at the end of World War II, the Nazis are trying to get invaluable art out of France and into Germany and essentially steal it at the end of the war. We've seen this in movies before. And Burt Lancaster plays one of these French resistance fighters. Please forgive the fact that Burt Lancaster is as far from French as any actor has ever been. And... It's all about the sort of construction, the rebuild, and the stalling of this train to move from Paris to a part of Germany where they're going to deliver the art. Shot in black and white, beautiful movie, incredible train sequences, real trains crashing into each other in the 1960s. Amazing movie. I highly, highly recommend it. You should You should check it out after we finish recording this. I definitely will. I definitely will. You, Sean, you've sold it. I'm Thanks, definitely going to
1: check it out. <laughs>
0: okay. I hope other people will too. Um, the next one that is on my list, I think you've probably heard of. It's called Unstoppable. It was directed by Tony Scott. It stars <laughs> Denzel Washington and Chris Pine. It was Once Upon a Time. An entry on the Rewatchables with Quentin Tarantino. You up, you're up on Unstoppable, right, man?
1: Actually, I should have had it on my list. I, I enjoy the movie a lot. I'm a big Tony Scott fan. Like a big Tony Scott fan. Bigger than most. So like, I, I, I dug the movie. It felt, it felt like kind of a joke movie when it first came out. Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. But when I watched it, it actually was better than I thought it was going to be. And I I enjoy it a lot.
0: I wonder if Unstoppable is the kind of movie like the conversation we're having about Bullet Train where we went in and we were like, all right, a big movie with Denzel Washington, but it feels like kind of a ridiculous premise. And then people, you know, it did pretty good business, but then people just completely forgot about it. And then 10 years later, everybody was like, you know what's amazing is Unstoppable. Like the lifespan of movies is really interesting because at the time, no one was really touting this. It was one of the great action movies of the 2010s, right? No, like the movie.
1: I remember they were. There was a Saturday Night Live sketch about it. You know what I mean? Like the movie. People were making the 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 train. It's unstoppable. It was just. It was funny. Like, We can't stop the train. Like you know what I mean? Like that was the whole thing. Like the you can't and to have Denzel to have Chris Pine, Pine and Denzel went through this uh this phase where. I guess it's not a phase. He only did it in a couple of movies. Maybe maybe three where they pair him up with the younger, sort of hotter, white male actor. You know, he did one with Ryan Reynolds. He did one with Chris Pine. And I think that some stalwart Denzel fans were kind of getting sick of that shit. You know what I mean? And so uh, there, was, there wasn't as much fanfare as a Denzel movie for this film. But I liked
0: it. By the way, not
1: only did I like this. I like Safe House with Ryan Reynolds. Like, I like that one too.
0: Yeah, it's okay. Chris Ryan rides for too. You know, what, it, I, I the one I don't ride for is Two Guns, and that was him with Mark Wahlberg. I didn't think that one worked with as Mark well. Wahlberg, yeah, I, I, like I saw that one the one time. It just kind of was. It 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 never really got anywhere. You know, um, Unstoppable is also related to a movie that's a little further on my list, but I'll I'll wait till I get to that number three. Kind of a controversial pick, even for myself. For years and years, I thought that Darjeeling Limited was the weakest of all the Wes Anderson movies, and it always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It never really worked. It felt like him kind of revisiting stuff we'd seen before in Tenenbaums and in Rushmore. And then I've seen it a couple of more times since it first came out, and I've gotten more and more interested in it. And it's also, it's a great train movie because, obviously, Wes Anderson is a master of production design and framing and blocking in all of his movies. And he makes you really feel like you're on that train. You know, it's very intimate. It's very cramped at times. But also the train in the film has this really intricate system. We see all of these shots of the camera kind of moving along the train tracks as it tracks what's happening in each car. It's a real, real, real train movie. And there's real purpose to it and integrity to it in terms of the way that it's made. Very good performances, I think. Especially Adrian Brody, I think is really, really good in this movie. Um, And I'm starting to, come around on it the way I you know often come around on you know malign movies by filmmakers I love and then spend more and more time thinking about how they made it are you are you even a Wes Anderson guy I don't know if we've ever talked about Wes
1: love Wes never seen the Darjeeling limited though
0: oh um, interesting like, you should check that out
1: never seen it um I don't know what about this movie just didn't get me going to where I had to see it. I know people are gonna be like oh he says he's a big fan but he hasn't seen all of the director's movies I just never had any interest in the movie for some reason. I'm not sure what that was about, um, and I've never seen it to this day. I'm curious for you though. What made you come around on it? Was it was it a change in your life? Was it what what made you come around on it after you were out on it at the be,
0: at the outset? Can I be really honest with you? Um, sure. I think when when I saw it, and in the ensuing years. I had a lot of problems, and this is probably has more to do with self-loathing than it does any kind of critical analysis, that it just felt like a white savior movie, and it felt like a white guy goes to India and tries to tell a story about this place, but he can only center the story on these white protagonists. And that, in retrospect, and it's something I've thought about a lot as I think about criticizing films and stories and where I'm at now versus where I was even five years ago, it was just a really facile reading of that movie and asking Wes Anderson to more accurately reflect you know, the Indian characters in the film. That isn't the story that he was trying to tell. He was trying to tell a story about these three brothers going on a trip. And he does that really well. And he, I think he portrays India very respectfully. And I think there is a little bit of white savior dumb in the movie, but also it's kind of an indictment. Like the, the sequence that I'm talking about, which you'll understand when you see the movie van is much more nuanced than I was willing to understand at the time. And so that's the other thing too, is like, as time goes on, Maybe you have a little bit more empathy for what a filmmaker is trying to do with something. Maybe you understand a little bit more clearly what they wanted and you're not so reactive. I'm trying to get a little bit less reactive in the way that I think about these things. And so once I started to give up on that hang up, I started to appreciate the movie a lot more for its for a lot of its beauty and a lot of its humor. So that's, that's basically what's changed.
1: Wow. Well said. Well said.
0: Um, okay. A couple more for you. The first one is the one that's related to Unstoppable, which is Runaway Train. Which is an absolutely amazing movie. I don't I don't it's very similar to Unstoppable in that it is about an unstoppable runaway train, and also that the train is like the third character in the film, and it is a, a domineering force of nature in the movie. It's directed by um Andrei Konchalovsky, the Russian filmmaker. It stars John Voigt and Eric Roberts. Eric Roberts kind of right at the start of his Is this guy gonna be a big movie star figure? And it's about two escaped convicts who jump aboard a, tr- a away a train out of alaska to get back to safe harbor in the united states and in doing so the train sort of has a malfunction the conductor jumps off of the train the brakes sort of break and then this train is just hurtling through the earth as quickly as possible and it is a thrilling show it is like one, one of the better movies of the 1980s. It's one of the more forgotten action epics of the 1980s. Both John Voight and Eric Roberts were nominated for, for their performances, despite the fact that this is not really the kind of movie that usually gets Academy Award nominations. I think it's one of the very first movies that Rebecca Mornay was in. Um, it's probably the most well-known movie that Konchalowski directed in the United States. Um, he's still active. He made a film in Russia a couple of years ago that was pretty acclaimed. But um, like, if you Google Runaway Train right now, the first thing that you get is unstoppable in your return. You don't get the movie Runaway Train, but um, <laughs> That's the, it's, beca- it's because it feels like they're very much, um, they're sister films, they're brother films, they're related to each other. But uh, the one interesting little tidbit too about Runaway Train is it's based on a story that Akira Kurosawa wrote that was meant to be one of his big movies in the 60s and he could never really get the money in place to do it. And so it was eventually adapted in the United States by... Golan and Globus and, and Canon films. And it's also one of the best movies that Canon ever produced. You know, they produced a couple of cool movies and a lot of stinkers over the years. But um, Runaway Train is just an absolute banger if people have not heard of it.
1: Wow. Now, I hadn't heard of it, and I'm going to check it out because I have to see the movie that Eric Roberts was nominated for an Academy Award for. You know, you forget about the Eric Roberts that was shot out of a cannon to be the next star like my begin the beginning of my eric roberts knowledge begins with best of the best and it kind of he had an interesting career to say the least after that but you know when you know more about him and he was that he was going to be that guy it kind of i mean he has a great career but i'll be interested to see how this movie because i've never seen this movie before
0: yeah i mean i think a lot of people think he is very difficult to work with and so he had this run in the eighties where he was in the poach, he was in star 80 and then the Pope of Greenwich village and then runaway train and then best of the best. And those were, I think like his big, like I'm here announcements, but also right around the best of the best time is when he really started taking on like a tough reputation. And so he never really made as many, well-respected, I guess, for lack of a better word, movies. But his performance and voice performance are like on a thousand. They're like, they both win Dion Waiter's going away. Like, it is, they're such heat <laughs> check performances, but they're fun and they're kind of appropriate. It's like, if you were on a runaway train and you would just escape from prison, you probably would be screaming at the top of your lungs the whole time too. So, uh, I, I like that movie. I think you should definitely check it out. The last one um, I'm going to recommend is called The Taking of Pelham 123. Not the Denzel Washington and John Travolta version, though that version is okay. But the original from 1974, simply one of the best movies of the 70s. Uh, it's a crime drama. It's also a subway movie. It's not an external train movie. It's a it's an underground train movie. Um, and it's a movie that, if you look at Reservoir Dogs, if you look at Heat, if you look at some of the best kind of crime and heist movies of the 1990s, you can see a lot, a lot of the Taking of Pelham One Two Three in it, in the way that the dialogue is written, in the way that the characters have these kind of hidden identities. In the way that they seem somehow related to bigger plots, but they're not always necessarily fully explained, and also in the way that the characters, the actors that are cast, seem like real people. It's not a movie full of beautiful movie stars. It's Walter Matthau, it's Martin Balsam, it's Hector Elizondo, it's guys who seem like you would see them on the streets in New York City. And the dialogue is crisp. It's directed by Joseph Sargent. It's just, a, it's just a wonderful movie. Have you seen, the, have you seen the original Pelham One, Two, Three? I
1: have, and I think. This movie is the example of sometimes what a remake can do. Sometimes a remake is successful because the remake is a successful remake in and of itself. And sometimes a remake is successful because it makes you curious about its predecessor. That's happened to me numerous times. And um, watched it, and when I realized that it was a remake, and I saw the cast of the, the previous film, because I told you, you know, Tony Scott, I'm going to watch everything that he does, um, I went back and watched it, and it was really great, and it's a, a really good movie, and it a movie that reminds you of just how rich uh, a movie decade that the 70s actually were, because when you talk about great movies of the 70s, not that many people say would, would bring this movie up, but it definitely is one of uh, the better movies from that decade, for
0: sure. So 1974, just to give you a little taste of what was happening in the world of movies that year, um, the aforementioned Murder on the Orient Express, The Longest Yard, Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, Towering Inferno, <laughs> little movie called The Godfather Part 2, Freebie and the Bean, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Chinatown, Death Wish, Nuts. And, th- and this movie. Um, among among many others, frankly. We didn't, man, we had it so good. I wasn't even alive, but I, I longed for those days when I was <laughs> n- negative eight years old. That was a hell of a time <laughs> in American movies. Um, any closing yeah. thoughts on train movies? Any honorable mentions you want to shout out? You wanted to put on Throw Mama from the Train. Can you speak on that? So I wanted to put Throw Mama on the Train. Shout out to my own
1: mother um, and, our, and the Billy Crystal, Danny DeVito phase that we had in our life. Um, uh, love Throw Mama from the Train. Love a great black comedy. Black comedy is so hard now in the world that we live in, where people don't think that killing someone is a joke. Uh, but it done done correctly, killing someone can be very funny, or the want to kill someone can be very funny. Um, you know, if we take our foot off the gas and breathe and have a little fun for a second, Throw out from the train is a movie that at the end I didn't feel like took place enough on a train, but mm-hmm. uh, I enjoyed it. I wanted to put on planes, trains, and automobiles. And that movie, when I went back and watched it, very little of it takes place on a train, but it still has the DNA of a train movie because of the way the film you know, kind of moves. They're always on the road. Um, mm-hmm. just another one of my favorite films, Heartbreaking Ending. God damn it, they did that movie well. Um, but other than that, you know, I had a problem thinking about other movies set on trains that uh that I would that that I really, really loved. But I did realize it was one thing. There hasn't been a great black movie set on a train. Hmm. And I wonder what that is about. Because when I I've taken the train all the way, Sean, we haven't talked about our personal train experiences. When I was still had aviophobia when I didn't want to fly my first couple of years in LA, I would take the train from Los Angeles to 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 Baton Rouge. Really? To take the Yeah. Yeah, multiple times. You're like times. John Madden.
0: Yeah. You, I, didn't, I don't think I realized time. that you struggled with that.
1: Uh, for a long time, I did. Not now, obviously, but for a long time, I did. 48-hour train ride. <laughs> What's the sleep car like? I've never done the sleep car. So I've never done it either. Um, you, you, I mean, you can do a sleep car, but I didn't have sleep car money at that particular time. I had the recline back as far as you could car. Like, that's oh, what I had. Oh, wow. You know, I had, yeah, yeah. I you, had you would do a
0: 48-hour trip with no sleep car, just sleeping in the, in the seat.
1: Sleeping in the seat. And I remember I had an epiphany. We, because the train obviously takes a lot longer to, to get anywhere. The train is stopping. I had an epiphany. Left LA one time. And we got to, I feel like, we got to like Palm Springs or something. There's a stop in Palm Springs or nearabouts that area. And it had been three hours. And I thought, if I'd have flown, I'd be home by now. (laughs) As it stands, I got 45 more hours until I get Uh, home. And I have to work through it. You know what I mean?
0: That is brutal. That is. I've never done anything even close to that. I've taken long train trips, you know, just up and down the East Coast. And um, I always enjoy it. I always like riding on the train. Obviously, I also spent, 12 years of my life riding the damn subway every day and I absolutely despise the subway Um, and I spent my youth riding on the Long Island Railroad going into New York City frequently multiple times a month so I have a train I've had a train lifestyle in the past I don't don't really miss trains I don't use the trains here in Los Angeles perhaps I should but this is a driving town and I drive everywhere Um, I don't know maybe I should take a cross country trip I don't know if my young child would be into that. That sounds like kind of a nightmare, honestly. But uh
1: I, I think I think I think you're past it, Sean, I think you're preaching the gospel about the subway in LA too.
0: Yeah, we don't we, it's a it's a good thought. I believe in public transportation. Unfortunately, I'm <laughs> a selfish asshole uh who wants what I want. Um Dan, this was fun. Thank you, man. Thank you for sharing all your all your trained truth today.
1: Thank you, bro. Thank you for having me. A lot of fun. Can't wait for the next one, man.
0: thanks again to van thank you to bobby wagner for his production work on this episode we'll see you next week on the big picture when me and cr will be talking about the new predator movie and all the predator movies i'm talking about prey it's on hulu right now check it out and we'll see you next week
1: this episode is brought to you by state Farm.